E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Frederick Mounier of Jacques Frederick Mounier in Chambol on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. I'm very happy to be here. Very nice to have you here. So your parents met in Saigon. Yes, on my especially on my mother's side, they have been uh, travelers uh, or with an uh, Eastern uh, interest. My actually, my great grandmother uh, was Japanese, and um, her daughter uh, spent uh, most of her life in China, and uh, she was was born in China and got married in China. And uh, my mother, I met her, my father, her husband in, uh, in Saigon and, uh, in 1954. Interesting times to be in Saigon. Yeah, that's the reason why they had to leave the country at short delay, uh, just a couple of weeks after they got married. They got married just two weeks before the, the fall of Dien Bien Phu. Your dad had studied as a lawyer, but he ended up becoming a banker. Yeah, precisely. He was raised in uh, Dijon, uh, and uh, the family uh, owned uh, both the vineyard and uh, the house in Chambord. And but the big business was in fact the uh, company uh, for uh, producing liquors and aperitif. And uh, he decided to, after the war, he decided to um, leave the, the Dijon and. Uh, to take uh, another direction for his uh, career. And the good decision was uh, he decided to sell the liquor business and keep the, the, the vineyard. So your dad had been born in the 20s, went through the war when he was still a young man, and then he leased the vineyards to Faverly starting in 1950. So like you said, right after the war, mm. he decided to leave Burgundy. Yes, that's uh, exactly what he, what he did. And your family, as you just said, had had a, a history of doing spirits and was particularly associated with absinthe originally as a company or earlier in the earlier in the century. Yeah, so all kind of uh, aperitif and spirits, uh, absinthe, uh, cassis, and uh, also um, fortified wines and uh, or bitter or, uh, aperitif with cancina. Uh, those things that were very popular at the beginning of the 20th century 
and uh, much less in fashion uh, after the war. In the late 1800s, your family, the family that had this spirits company, had purchased vineyards in Shambol. The domain has been a five-generation story. It's been created by my great-great-grandfather, uh, whose name was Frederick, just like me. So he created first the, the, the spirit business uh, and was very successful with it. And uh, the vineyard and the house in Chambord were uh, purchased later uh, towards the, well, somewhere between the 1860s and the early 1900s. And uh, probably at a time when there were, uh, when it was um, an arguable choice to invest in the vineyards, because uh, there, there was so uh, much problems in the vineyards, especially with phylloxera. Uh, phylloxera was destroying the the, the vineyard, and uh, most of the purchases was were done, uh, as I understand, uh, right after the contamination by phylloxera. So. He probably has uh, been able to buy the vineyard for a low price. In fact, the oldest bottle of wine I have drank with the family bottle was a Musin in 1915. It was very good. That was, in very, that, that was maybe 10 years ago. And the wine was surprisingly in a, in a surprisingly good condition. Most of the times... People tend to think that Bordeaux can age longer and better than, than Burgundy. And uh, well, I'm really not sure it's the case. I, I have some uh, wines from the 30s in, uh, in my cellar, which are, are fresh like, uh, like babies, incredibly, incredibly young and fresh. Obviously, it's not every vintage and it's not every wine, but uh, the best ones can age uh, clearly a uh, hundred years and more. You make white wine from Chardonnay now that's planted at the northern part of Clotho Marichal and Louis St. George, but for a long time, like 50 years, that wine wasn't made. And it was made because you found some old bottles of white? Yes. Probably uh, the bottling of the wines was not down in Chambord, but in Dijon, uh, where they have had all, all the facilities for the spirits. And uh, I suspect that the, the, their stocks of uh, bottled wines uh, was held in Dijon. And it's only when they sold the business in Dijon that they decided to bring back uh, some of their stocks uh, to Chambord in what is now my cellar. Uh, so I don't have the whole range of all the wines, all the vintages, but uh, they brought only the best ones, the ones they wanted to drink, uh, and I mean, some, sometimes in some good quantities. So I had only uh, one uh, Claude de la Maréchal Blanc uh, in the cellar, which was 1943. Well, in fact, I had a bottle last week, <laughs> just last Sunday, uh, with a visiting friend. Uh, well, it's now... Um, not as uh, exciting as it was 10 years ago, I must say. But after 70 years in my cellar, it was still excellent and, and very good, fresh and, uh, and expressive. It's clearly a vineyard that produces wines that can age. So the family purchases Claude Marichal, which is in Nuit St. George, actually in Premo in 1902. Mm -hmm. So a little bit later than a Chambol property. And it's a sizable monopole. 
Yes, it's a large vineyard, uh, at least by Burgundy standards. It's uh, almost 10 hectares, that must be 25 acres. And it's the largest monopole, uh, at least as a premier cru, uh, in, uh, in Burgundy. It's a really good thing to be in charge of, uh, to be in control of, uh, of a large piece of vineyard. We are used in Burgundy to work very tiny pieces here and there, a few rows between neighbors on, uh, on both sides. A large vineyard is in, is in fact not more difficult, but easier to work. And uh, it gives more consistent quality year after year because different sections will uh, react differently to uh, the the weather every year and uh, the quality uh, is more consistent so your dad went off in a career that took him to different parts of the world he left dijon and he leased the vineyards both in chambol and in Nuit saint george to favorly with long-term lease starting in 1950 and then towards the end of his life he gets the vineyards back because he dies in 1980, but he gets the vineyards back in 77. Yes, uh, in 1977, uh, was the year of uh, the end of one of the contract, and you know, the contract had to be renegotiated. And uh, it was difficult because the law in France protects the farmer against the owner, and um, the owner is not in a position to impose its conditions. So it really had to be a, a negotiation. And, uh, and Guy Fevely at the time was uh, also a doctor-in-law as my father. I, I actually, they were friends uh, from the university. So that would be Erwan's grandfather, actually. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Guy's son was François, and Erwan is uh, François's son. Uh, so the negotiation uh, was that to get rid of the legal limitations uh, regarding the renewal of the contract, a part of, uh, of the domain, which was uh, a piece of Clovougeau, uh, half an hectare of Clovougeau, in fact, would become a favorless property. And Claude Le Maréchal, yeah, the lease would be renewed for a 25 years period. On the other hand, my father was free on the chambol musigny part of the vineyard. And that was a smart uh, arrangement because uh, it, uh, the chambol side is, in fact, the most precious. It includes the musigny Bonnemar Amours. It's small enough to be manageable and not involve too big investment. And yeah, it was the right approach to get back in the business of making wine. What your dad did is he hired a registrar to make the wine, and then that wine was often sold to Nagos after it was made. My father still had a job in Paris, we, we, and, which, and, a young, uh, and a young girl. In 1977, my sister was 10 years old at school in Paris. My father was, uh, had, still had his job in Paris, and he uh, couldn't move to Chambord and, uh, to control the domain. So he had to rely on uh, one of his school friends, who was uh, Bernard Clare. Bernard Clare is uh, um, Bruno Clare's father. And uh, so he was appointed as a manager right, for the domain at the time. So he would vinify and then often sell to Jodot. 
Yeah, the wine was vinified in, uh, in Chambord under the control of uh, Bernard Clair and sold in bulk to uh, Négociant. Making wine again in Chambord in, uh, was implying a big investment. We had no equipment and it takes a very long time before you uh, pay for the work uh, for the work and the expenses in the vineyard and the time when you are able to have something to sell. Uh, you have to keep the business working and the work made for three years as a minimum uh, before you get the first cent back from the uh, from selling the wines. Uh, it, it means a lot of money, and uh, well, we were, my father was living on his salary in, in the bank, and he just we, we just could not invest uh, too quickly in the in the business. So. Selling to uh, Négociant was the solution, was the, the easy solution. The only one, actually. If I were to find a Jadot, Chambol, Amaroos from the 1980 vintage or 81 vintage, that might be Meunier fruit. Yeah, most likely uh, the largest part of the, uh, of the wine is uh, from uh, our vineyards, yes. So your father passes away in 1980, and at the time, you were um, in the Middle East. Yes, I studied engineering at university, and I finished in 1979. And uh, I spent uh, five years on um, offshore oil projects uh, as a design or construction engineer. And uh, yeah, oil is found mostly in uh, non-wine drinking countries. I must say, uh, my, my first job was in uh, was in Norway, where, where at the time nobody was was drinking wine. All, all alcoholic beverages were very highly taxed, and uh, it was uh, people were preparing their own beverage from uh, powder wine and uh, the medical uh, alcohol. And then I moved to um, the Gulf States and Saudi Arabia. Eventually, you decided to make a change because you took a sabbatical from that work. Yeah, at some point, uh, I realized that uh, my family uh, had a very precious property in Burgundy. And uh, we were not taking all the care that was necessary, that was needed in, uh, with, with this vineyard. Didn't know much. I didn't know anything about uh, wine. When I had participated in a couple of uh, harvests, but for a short period, for a few days, uh, during my holidays, uh, in between 1980 and, uh, and 1984. But uh, that was all. I didn't know anything about wine and winemaking, and uh, and I uh, had very little experience of wine drinking, uh, except the wines we could have at the family table and uh, on Sundays uh, when I was a kid. So I clearly needed to uh, get there and spend some time, uh, look around and uh, try to understand uh, the way things uh, go in Burgundy and what it is to make wine and, uh, and um, 
So I asked for a sabbatical leave from my company, and I spent a year in in Chambord. Um, and after a year, clearly, uh, it was clear I wouldn't uh, get back to engineering. What do you think was the moment of realization, or maybe the cause of the realization that you decided that this was a special thing to get back to? What brought on that that decision making? So it's a very special job. It's a very rare position to uh, have such a total control on what you're doing. Uh, I can plant a vineyard, work it, harvest it, make the wine, bottle it, sell it, meet the people who drink it. I control everything from uh, the field to uh, the the customer. There are very few jobs uh, where you can have such a total control in in a production process. In fact, in the modern world, that's very and that's very rewarding. If you succeed, if the consumer is satisfied with your with the wine, if he gets pleasure from it, you can take the the, the, the responsibility of it. If you fail, it's your responsibility too. You cannot uh, blame anybody else. But uh, I like it. So did it appeal to a part of your training as an engineer when you came back to look at something a little differently? Did you feel that the two lives intersected in some way when you came back? Yeah, I wanted to use as much of uh, from technique and science as I could, but I did not take um, very much time before I realized that uh, it just doesn't work. Wine is not like oil or, uh, or steel. In fact, the big difference is the quality of wine cannot be defined in just a couple of parameters. And quality is, cannot even be defined all in, on a linear scale. This wine is slightly better than this wine, but not as good as another one. Basically, quality in wine is, is an aesthetical question. There is no absolute truth. It's, uh, it's subjective. Anybody who has an opinion, who tastes the wine and really pays attention and is open to what he feels from this wine, when he has an opinion on the wine, he cannot be wrong. It's, if he finds it good, it's good. Somebody else can have a different opinion, but... There is no uh, referee that uh, can uh, decide what is good and what is better and not not as good. It just does not mean anything. We, of course, we do our best to make the best possible wines. But uh, best is not enough. What is really important is that each wine must have a personality of its own. Each wine must be distinct from any other one. It sounds like what you're saying is that the part that you liked was the opposite of the engineering part. The part that you liked was kind of embracing a, a different part of your brain. Uh, yeah, uh, what, what what I liked in wine, you, you can say it that way. Is uh, yeah, exactly it's the the opposite of uh, what um, can be found in industry. So you get back and you speak with Bernard Clare, who, as you said, is Bruno Clare's father and who made the 84s, although you were there for harvest. And what did he tell you about the program for the vineyards and the wines? Yeah, he did not give me a big, great directions for the, what 
I should do or not do. Yeah, he was very pragmatic and, well, this is what I do. Uh, I show you what I know, the, the way I make wine. I've been making wine for so many years. He was uh, very experienced. But, yeah, I, I had to find my own way later. And how did that come about? So the first bottlings of Mounier are 84. You're there from 85. And then what happens? Well, there was a worker in uh, what we call that kind of contract, à la tâche, or tâcheron. He don't come to get his instruction every morning to decide on what, but he's responsible, he's in charge of uh, the, uh, a list of works that have to be done uh, in the vineyard uh, at the right time. But I had no direct control, uh, no, um, yeah, every day on the, on his works. And, but he was a very, uh, very, very serious man and a, and a good worker and uh, well, I could, I could, he's somebody I, I could very uh, strongly rely on. And that way he was very precious to me. Does he still work with you? He retired in 2003 and uh, he passed away a couple of years ago now. So the, then came the, the my first harvest, 1985, and uh, which by I was very fortunate. It was it was an excellent harvest with a very good quality grapes, and I've done uh, what I've seen Bernard Claire do, and and my uh, and his name is Bernard Odifred, the, the the vineyard worker who, is, who has been in charge for a long time of the vineyard, and well. Uh, we, we've done what they were used to do, and uh, I thought it was very simple. Well, you, you house the grapes, you bring them into the, the fermenting vats, and you wait until the fermentation starts, and uh, when the fermentation is over, you uh, empty the tank and, uh, and press the, uh, the skins and transfer the wine into the barrels, and that's it. And that's almost as simple as that. It was almost as simple as that. And uh, when looking backward, uh, it's almost frustrating to see how easy it was and how good the wines uh, were. And uh, it's something that I keep in mind all the time. It does not take a great winemaker to make a great wine. Making wine is a very simple process. It's very natural. When the grapes are of good quality, uh, it can be uh, just as simple as that. But it helps when you have Mousseny and Amaroos and Pont Noir. Of course. The great vineyards, uh, the Grand Cru vineyards, are the easiest to work. Uh, there are those who... Well, <laughs> I was going to say those who never freeze, uh, but uh, 2016 proved the contrary. But still, those who rarely freeze, uh, those who are less affected by disease, uh, mildew and, uh, and rot. In fact, rework is always easier in Grand Cru uh, vineyards. Yeah, it's something I, well, I keep in mind, the fact that the greatest wine can be made with very little uh, action from the winemaker. Uh, it's, uh, the process can be kept very simple and natural. 
what is more difficult uh, is not to make one great wine once in a decade or once in a life. Uh, what is difficult is to make good wine every year. And uh, whatever the, the quality of the grapes, whatever the weather. So that's why, in fact, I'm much prouder of uh, difficult vintages where I think I've been able to make some good wines than the greatest uh, wines that were made, uh, which may have been made just by chance. As you started to learn the cruise, because you have, as we just said, Mousseny, Bonmar, Les Amoureux, you have Le Fouy, now you have Marichal back in Nuit St. George, and then you have a couple other parcels that go into your Chambeau Village. So when you look at the cruise and you look back on those 85s and as you started to walk the vineyards more, what did you find? I'm not sure I have a... I'm the one who is in the best position to have an opinion on my own wines, in fact. Uh, uh, It seems to me uh, my style must have changed. Uh, I'm doing things very differently uh, now than uh, I was at the time. But I'm surprised uh, sometimes when uh, some people uh, tell me that uh, my uh, 1985 or 86 or 88 are clearly in my style, which I think must have changed. In fact, what I mean is uh, I cannot really uh, relate uh, the style of the wines I've made with the way they have been made, with the details of the process that have produced those wines. I've changed uh, from uh, whole clusters to destemming, from uh, hot maceration to cooler ones. Uh, shorter to longer and many things have changed and still it it seems that there is a a common style that has resisted all these changes. I'm not a mystic man and uh, I have no interest in the esoteric uh, things and all this but I've come to the point when uh, it seems to me that there is something spiritual that goes through into the wine that dictates the style of the wines. Uh, whatever the independently from the actual uh, treatments that have been uh, applied to the wines it seems like that that from my limited experience holds the most true for the Mousseny and the Amaroos in terms of your lineup in terms of what seems like the same character all the way through even if this technique has changed a little bit yeah, well, Musini and Amours uh, must have a stronger uh, personality than, than the others and the character that raises the winemaker, in fact. I mean, I don't know if you agree, but to me, it seems like this. Like, even we were discussing how, because Amounier parcels were sold to Druon at an earlier point, that you're often a neighbor of Druon. And for me, when I think about Druon Musini from, like, 88, the quality of that wine texturally and the kind of fruit, I can see a family resemblance to the Mounier Mousseny, even though, you know, I'd asked you in the context of, did you think it was the same vine material? And you said no. So, you know, maybe it's just aspect on the slope. But for me, there did seem to be a, a resemblance. Actually, in 1988, probably uh, the vine material uh, was the same in, uh, in Mousseny and the uh, well, in part of Mousseny and uh, 
and the moors on both sides, uh, Munier or Drouin. Uh, both vines had been planted in the, the early 20th century, the first half of the 20th century. And uh, it was the same vine, so it Maybe well, it's certainly a reason why there is a common style in uh, in the two. But it seems to me it's still the case uh, now, and uh, many of the uh, vineyards have been replanted since. So the Favorly team did some replants of certain vineyards. Yeah, Favorly was in charge of the replanting in uh, in all of our vineyards. In fact, we had no control on the uh, on the replanting of the vines. 04 came along, or I should say late 03 came along, and you got Marischal back, which was in Louis St. George, and that's, as you said, a larger parcel, one of the biggest monopoles around, and so that meant you really had to scale up as a producer, because what you'd said before is you had a, a small holding, and you were able to do it with a small facility and a small staff, but bringing in that amount of hectare meant that you had to make some infrastructure changes about 20 years after you started. Yeah, the, the size of the domain has been multiplied by 3.5 in a day, in fact. And uh, so it, no, it implied big changes. Uh, I needed more space. I had to build a new uh, fermenting room and, uh, and a new cellar. Yeah, I had to hire a full new team uh, in 2004. Uh, the, the, my vineyard worker was working only part-time for me and sometime with the help of his wife. So it was a little more than one full-time uh, worker. I've hired uh, seven uh, workers for the vineyard. So uh, given that the surface of the vineyard was multiplied by 3.5, I almost doubled the number of man-hours spent of each vine every year. It was a clear decision I made. I wanted to improve the quality of the work in the vineyard. And also the type of contract was different. I had now the full control on the staff in the, in the vineyard. And we've changed uh, many things at the time. We've changed the pruning system. In fact, we used two systems. You know, on our old vines, uh, old meaning more than 30 years, something like that, we have modified the guillot pruning system for a long cane uh, pruning system, which gives a better exposure of the leaves to the sunshine. And uh, the younger vines are pruned uh, with the cordon de Royal system. So that's true both in Chambol and, and in Marichal. It's a younger, older thing. It's not a terroir thing. Yeah, the work in the vineyard is the same in uh, all, all the, the vineyards. The team is the same. We were doing much more debudding, and uh, may we, we were taking um, a lot of um, efforts to uh, have a very tidy, very neat uh, trellis with the vineyard. So you do a long cane and on the old vines, and then you actually do debudding. So you take a bud off, to, so it's not that many... But. Yes, the idea is to uh, have more space between the shoots. The wind can flow more easily uh, between the leaves and the clusters, and uh, it prevents the accumulation of moisture uh, around the grapes and therefore uh, disease. And um, it's a period when we had to do uh, green harvests uh, in most of the years. 
So that was pretty much more work, but uh, it shows in the wines. It seems to me uh, there's a clear, well, Claude de la Marechal was new, but uh, the same methods were uh, used in Chambord as well. And uh, you can see the difference in the quality of the wines around uh, 2004. So the gentleman who had been looking after the vineyards for you, he retires. At the same time, you get a lot more vineyard acres, and so you hire a new team. And you mentioned that you were green harvesting a lot, but I think now what you prefer to do is do what you alluded to, which is more debudding instead of green harvesting. So when you first got the vineyards back, you had to do a lot of green harvesting, but now you try not to. Well, green harvest uh, is not something satisfactory for... Uh, it's something I hate to do. Uh, it's totally completely unnatural. It's when we have to do it, uh, well, sometimes we really have, because uh, we know that if the crop is too big, the grapes will not ripen properly. So we have to remove the grapes that are in excess. But clearly it's the sign of uh, something unbalanced in the vineyard. It's uh, either too vigorous vines or the soil that is too rich or something else. So, uh, in a way, I was uh, happy to see that after 2009, uh, we had low, naturally low, smaller crops. Uh, the problem now is uh, the, the trend uh, is still uh, directed downwards. We, we did, uh, you get less quantity every year. We have less quantity every year. So green harvest, uh, I, I would be happy uh, next year if I have to do <laughs> if I have to do a green harvest. I must say. No, it seems that the the balance in the vineyard has m- moved from an excessive vigor to uh, not enough vigor, and uh, we have the problem is everything we do in the vineyard, every change we do in the vineyard, in the way we fertilize the soil or the, the, the way we do the work on the vines takes a very long time before it brings its effects. And in a way, we have starved our, our vines in, in the 2000s, in the, at the beginning of the, uh, of the century. And uh, we only see now the effect of bringing not enough fertilizers to the vines. Because you had stopped fertilizing and you had stopped with herbicides and pesticides earlier in the 90s. Yes, I, I've stopped herbicides very early. It was uh, just a few years after I started to make wine in, in Burgundy. That's something that I found unnatural and uh, yeah, I didn't like. And my, my philosophy is uh, if it's not absolutely necessary, it shouldn't be done. And it applies to herbicides as well as anything else. Uh, any operation that is not strictly necessary should be uh, avoided. I, I would like to uh, have uh, an expression of my vines that would be as natural as possible. Uh, there's something that uh, about that that works very well with, in the cellar. It was the work uh, on the wines. The less, the better. Uh, but uh, it seems it doesn't work uh, quite well in the in the vineyard. Producing good grapes take an awful lot of work. 
you cannot say I let my vines grow the way they feel good and uh, they will if they feel good I will get good grapes it's uh, something it seems that the project of the vines is not to produce the kind of grapes we are looking for uh, so really, we we have to stress them. We have to prune them severely, and um, well, it takes a lot of work. So you get Marischal back for '04, and you developed a second bottling out of Marischal under the old name of the property that was a Village bottling, and that bottling is where some of the more high-yielding vines of Marichal went and where some of the young vines of Marichal went. So I think right away you realized that you weren't immediately getting the kind of grapes that you wanted because you came up with this other bottling. Yeah, in 2004, with the first vintage of Claude Le Marichal, um, yeah, it was a big challenge. And I really wanted to get the best possible uh, wine from this vineyard and, uh, and to offer to the public only the best possible wine. And I decided to make a selection. Uh, by nature, uh, it's a big vineyard. Uh, all the grapes would not fit in one tank, and uh, necessarily there are several cuvées of this vineyard. And before bottling, I made a selection. I used only the best, the best uh, cuvées to make the Claude Le Maréchal. And the other ones were bottled uh, uh, under the name Claude Fourche. I decided to, well, I needed to have a name and I decided to use the old name, the historic name of Claude Le Maréchal. Uh, the, the name Claude Le Maréchal uh, appears only towards the end of the 19th century. Until then, it was known as Claude Fourche and I have used that name. I say uh, only the best were grapes in, uh, in Claude Le Maréchal and the not so good ones in Claude Fourche. It doesn't work exactly that way. So I arranged the blends uh, from the, the initial, I think it was nine cuvées. I arranged the blends to have two different styles, then two different levels of quality. I wanted to make a Claude La Maréchal that would be serious, structured, uh, long-lived, uh, with an, an intensity, with a good intensity. And Claude Fourche had to be more like a pretty wine, attractive fresh and uh, easier, a wine that could be drunk uh, earlier than, uh, than Claude Le Marchand. I don't see it so much in New York, the Claude Fouche. No, actually, uh, there are only a few vintages where I produced Claude Fouche. There was uh, 2004, 2006, 7 and 8, and so 8 is the last vintage where I've produced uh, uh, Claude Fouche. All the grapes have gone into the Claude de la Maréchal bottling uh, since 2008. Seems to me I now get more even qualities throughout the vineyard. One reason can just be that the young vines are 10 years older, and uh, so they are not so young, and it doesn't make such a difference between the young vines and the others. But uh, it's probably certainly not the only reason. Well, I think we've come to know better the the vineyard, the, every spot in the vineyard, and to adapt our, the work to uh, the specificities of the, each spot. And we, we now get a much better quality, and I find that the best cuvee is always the blend of all, uh, all of them. 
And why do you think that there's numerous monopoles of Nuit St. George in Premo, like that sector of Nuit St. George? Why are there multiple monopoles? Something historically? or That's very curious, I must say. So, uh, clearly, Premo is a, a, must have a different history, but in fact, it dates back to the beginning of the 19th century. And some of the monopoles there have been created by one man who uh, managed to purchase small plots here and there and uh, unite them in one big block. And uh, But Claude Lamarchal is older than most of the others. Uh, Claude Lamarchal was already uh, a monopole in the uh, 1820s. It appears on the, the first uh, map of the Burgundy Vineyard, uh, which is Cadastre Napoléon, from 1827. And, uh, and it shows uh, Claude Le Marchal exactly as it is now, with the same walls and the same house in the middle. But my neighbor, uh, Claude Larlo, was constituted uh, much later, in the, uh, around the 1860s or 70s. How do you think of Premo as a part of Nuit St. George yourself? Yes, Promo is a special sector within Nuit Saint-Georges. Uh, actually, uh, Nuit Saint-Georges is a quite extended uh, appellation. Uh, it extends from uh, Vaughan-Romané on the north side to claude la Maréchal. claude la Maréchal is the last vineyard to the south. And the Promo sector, the, the south sector, is, uh, is clearly different. Uh, we have uh, arranged with our, our neighbors in Promo uh, tasting of Promo wines, promo monopole vineyards, uh, a couple of times. And it was very interesting with me because it shows a very different expression of Nuit Saint-Georges. Uh, also in the 19th century books, especially Laval in 1855, uh, the wines from Promo are described as are the finest in, uh, in Nuit Saint-Georges. And uh, it was a time when the, what was Precious in wine was finesse was more precious than uh, concentration. Quality was really uh, identified with finesse, and uh, well, promo wines were the most precious in the sector. Laval says that the wines from Promo were selling for the same price as the Clovougeau. You indicated that you felt that these days the Marshal is, is best as a blend of the different parts of Marshal, which is a fairly large, as you said, monopole. So take me through that a little bit. What are the different parts? Obviously, the north part is planted to Chardonnay. What's the reasoning there in terms of why that part? Yes, the, the, the Chardonnay has been planted as a strip uh, along the north side wall. And I had the well, say three reasons to choose this section. One was uh, it's the part of the, the vineyard that is closest to Claude Larlo, and especially the white vines from Claude Larlo. And Claude Larlo Blanc is an absolutely delicious wine, which I, I really uh, like very much. So, you know, the idea was. Uh, if it's good uh, on the other side of the wall, it shouldn't be too bad on my side. The other uh, reason was maybe more serious. Maybe it's just the same. In fact, the soil is slightly different from the soil in other parts of the uh, Claude La Maréchal. It's lighter, sandier, and uh, whiter. In fact, it looks like uh, 
by its aspect, it seems more suited to Chardonnay than other sections. But in fact, there was a third reason, uh, which is it was planted with a very poor selection of uh, Pinot Noir. And uh, grafting Chardonnay on these vines was a way to get rid of uh, these poor clones. So what about the other sectors for red? Do you find that it varies? No, well, the soil and the subsoil is relatively consistent uh, throughout the vineyard of Claude Le Maréchal. It's something that surprised me when I've come to know the, the vineyard better. But when you look at the situation, you think it's uh, very different from Chambord, uh, the, the, where the slope is steeper and uh, there are more movement in the terrain. And Claude Le Maréchal is rather flat and with, a, with a very little slope. Uh, you could think it's uh, deep soil and probably very clay. In fact, uh, clay is only very superficial. The solid bedrock is uh, close to the surface, so only 50, 60 centimeters under the surface. Very close to what we have in most of uh, Chambord Museum. So it's basically a solid limestone with uh, clay uh, on the top. And the type of limestone is very interesting because it's uh, what is called oolitic limestone. It's a kind of a soft and porous limestone. Uh, that type of uh, stone has the, can retain water during period of, of drought. Which is unusual for limestone. Usually the opposite happens. The, the upper layer is uh, what is called the uh, calcaire de Comblanchien. It's used to make floor tiles. Uh, it's very, very dense. And uh, yeah, it's it just not porous at all. It can resist in the, uh, to frost if it's used uh, outside. And, uh, it's, stone that, it's a type of stone that is uh, well appreciated for uh, any type of construction. Oolitic is soft and retains water. Water is the most important factor for the quality of, of the grapes. In fact, the signature of a great terroir is a terroir that can both drain away any excess of water after heavy rains, but also retain enough water during long periods of droughts to feed the vines. And um, that kind of uh, subsoil is uh, very interesting and, uh, from this point of view. So let's say that kind of profile is about uh, three-quarter or seven-eighths of the of Claude Le Maréchal. There's only a small part on the uh, southeast corner uh, where we have deep soil which can be either a clay in some parts or sand and stones in others. And that's certainly uh, the, the, the location of the, an ancient stream that used to flow there. I didn't know that. And when you have the wines, do you find a kind of a straightforward aging curve, like in a linear fashion, or does it go through curves at different periods of its time in terms of open close? We've done some progress in the way the, the wines uh, age. They, they now age in a more consistent way, more progressively, more linearly. 
the wines have a more predictable uh, evolution. They don't go through uh, steep ups and downs during their first years uh, of aging. We get riper grapes, we handle them with more care, and uh, we do a softer winemaking. That's probably the reason. We don't extract uh, rough tannins as much as we used to uh, 20, 30 years ago. How did you come to that idea? Because I feel like a certain kind of winemaking was very popular in Burgundy in the mid-80s when you come back, but you are not of that milieu. And then you came back and you developed your own palate. And of course, you had your own vineyard sources and you know, you're reflecting off that taste. But you essentially go in a whole other direction that wasn't popular in the 80s. And you develop an idea that I think now a lot of people look at as kind of an ideal for what, you know, especially Chambol is supposed to taste like, but like what Burgundy is supposed to taste like. But what were some of the influences along the way? Because you're an interesting case study as a guy who isn't in the Burgundy world and then comes back with key holdings in Burgundy and develops a palate for them. What was happening? Well, I, I do what I can do. Uh, and uh, I've been... I've tried to make wine, I've tried to learn how to make wine and do my best every year and uh, improve my wines every year. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, what was uh, what the great word uh, to express the quality of a wine in, in Burgundy, but it's not specific to Burgundy, the great word was concentration. And everybody was looking for, uh, was trying to make deeper wines, more with, with a dark color and uh, lots of structure. And, um, and that was uh, suddenly a reaction against uh, lean, diluted wines some that were sometimes produced in the 1980s and 1970s. And, and we suddenly needed some movement and some changes in that direction. Well, I've tried uh, to some extent, and uh, <laughs> maybe I just didn't succeed. Um, but, uh, well, I didn't try too much, I must To say. make big wines. To make big wines. Yeah. Uh, to make big wines. Because um, you used to punch down more when you first started, you told me. Yes. Yeah, yes. I, in the first years I've done, uh, I was doing a lot of punching downs. I was fermenting at high temperatures. Uh, I progressively softened uh, softened my winemaking, but uh, well, in the 1990s, my wines were considered as a, uh, light, uh, rather pale, and uh, well, it was certainly not the most uh, fashionable style. But I must say. Uh, I was feeling comfortable with the with my winemaking. I was my and I was I, I could accept the fact that my wines didn't have all the possible qualities, but they had enough of some, and uh, to make them interesting. And uh, and um, I'm not sure I'm a leader, uh, but I'm certainly not a follower. I like to go my own way and uh, do my own experiments. Uh, I've learned uh, to make wine mostly by trial, uh, trial and error. I've done my own experiments 
in my early years, uh, I could change completely from one excess uh, to the opposite excess the following year, uh, from cold fermentation to very hot maceration, from whole clusters to uh, whole distemming, and everything I've tried in all directions. And I know, and when I when I taste the wines uh, now, uh, in fact, I'm amazed at uh, the fact that it does not really change uh, so much the style of the wines. Probably the, the, the terroir and the vines are stronger than the winemakers and uh, the winemaker. And one of the things that's interesting about that terroir, the set that you have, at least for me, is that you have Bonmar and the vineyard next to Bonmar, and you have Mousseny and the vineyard next to Mousseny. It's a Interesting set. It's the big brother and the little brother in both cases, almost. Yeah, Lefue and Bonmar are well, uh, appellation, but my plots are not exactly neighbors. They are probably uh, 200 meters, uh, 300 meters uh, away, which in Burgundy is a long, <laughs> is a long distance. Amours and Musigny are uh, closer neighbors. And uh, um, I used to see them as the... the uh, uh, the big brother and the, the little, little child, or the mother and the daughter. And, but uh, in fact, I've realized that uh, it's much more complicated than that. And uh, it's very strange. The location is almost the same. The soil is not very different. Uh, it's basically the same profile with some differences. But uh, the differences between the two vineyards uh, are sometimes smaller than the differences that can be observed in uh, within the same vineyard so it's difficult to explain uh, the difference in the wine only by the differences in the soil in what we know of the soil so the wines should be very uh, very similar and uh, i find that they are very different the flavors can be quite uh, similar. Uh, the, the palate is more or less common, but the structure of the wines are very, is very different. Mousigny is uh, very intense, very deep, and it's mm, very seamless. Mousigny has a very has a seamless texture. It's Amoureuse in a, is uh, in a way just the opposite. It's uh, it's always vibrant. It's uh, it comes as a succession of uh, different impressions. That makes sense. I mean, I almost feel like that that's a Grand Cru character to be fully one thing, although nuanced. Does that make sense? Like I think of that way about like Chambertin. I think that way about Latash. Like I'm not talking about the parcel being different. There's differences in Latash, but I just mean when it hits your palate. It seems like a unified thing. Yeah, Musini is perfectly, uh, completely unified. It's perfectly integrated. It's uh, which makes it very impressive and uh, certainly gives an, uh, a hint of uh, what the, its potential for aging and uh, its greatness, its potential future greatness. Uh, Amores is just the opposite. It's completely expressive, completely open. It uh, gives uh, immediately a succession of very different sensations. It's vibrant. It shines more than, uh, than Musigny, but, uh, even, but it doesn't have the same tight and uh, integrated texture. Musigny is greater. 
it doesn't mean uh, that Les Amoureuses is not as great. Uh, there's something about uh, the idea of greatness that is a little bit confusing, but Amoureuse uh, has something that Musini doesn't have. Uh, Amoureuse, there's an emotion in Amoureuse that is related to a kind of fragility uh, that you can find in the in the wine. The flavors uh, you receive are very subtle and come one after the other. And uh, at the time when you can pick it, identify it, it's gone. Uh, Musini is just the opposite. It's here, it's stable. That's two different expressions. But when you taste both of the wines as young wines, the emotion is definitely on the amours side. It's interesting because when you go to the tasting at the cellar, those two are usually served next to each other, whereas the Bon Mar precedes the Amoureux in the usual order, which is not how most people would do it, I think. Most people would put the Grand Cru's together. Yeah, yes, the, the, the usual order for tasting is uh, Village, Premier Cru, Grand Cru, and more or less uh, the, the wines are arranged in terms of prices. <laughs> but uh, I prefer to have a kind of geographical order to, um, and to it makes it easier to perceive the terroirs, the different, the logic of the terroirs. We usually taste uh, Les Fuets, Bonnemar, Amoureuse, Musini in that order, which is a north to south order. And uh, the neighbors are tasted uh, side by side, uh, Bonnemar with Les Fuets, uh, Amoureuse with Musini. And uh, the similarities and the differences can be more easily perceived, I think. And it, it seems also to be a vine age thing. The Bonnemar is not as old as the Musini vines. Yes, certainly. Uh, the bon Mar. When I took over the vineyard in 1985, uh, I quickly realized I wasn't very satisfied with the quality of the vines that had been planted there in bon Mar. So I decided to pull up a large section of the, uh, of the vineyard, uh, something like half of the, uh, the vineyard. So the Bonmar has been made from young vines, uh, mostly from young vines in the 1990s and the, uh, and 2000s. And it's only now that uh, old uh, vines in uh, Bonmar are more than 30 years and it makes a big difference. And uh, I've seen the, the quality and the, the density, the texture of the wine uh, improving uh, in recent years uh, very clearly. Because with the Mousini, you take the young vine Mousini and you put it in the Chambeau Village. I've done very little uh, replanting in my vineyard as a general rule, and in Mousini's uh, specifically. There's only a small section that was replanted in uh, 1997, and the young vines are declassified to Chambeau. And with the Bon Mar, you have both soil types. You know, sometimes people talk about the Terre Blanche and Terre Rouge of Bon Mar, the white and the red, but you have both. Yes, the top part of the of the plot is the terre blanche, the lower part is terre rouge. Bonmar is my smallest vineyard. 
I make only uh, three to three or four barrels uh, every year, so it's too small to ferment the the two types uh, separately. And anyway, it wouldn't mean much because uh, the DH of the vines would be different, and the and the vine selection would be different. One of the things I found fascinating when I visited your cellar, which wasn't that long ago, so I feel like it's closer to the mature winemaking style as opposed to what you were describing before where you modified the technique frequently. Um, what I found is that there's a uniform consistency on how you approach the wine year to year. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting point. Um, the first thing that is very important to keep in mind is uh, my wines are all made exactly the same way. There's strictly no difference in the process or in the winemaking of uh, Chambol, Musigny, Village, and the Grand Cru, or Nuit Saint-Georges. They're all made exactly the same way. Which is unusual in Burgundy. Most people wouldn't do it that way. Yeah, it's always tempting for a winemaker to show uh, his skills and uh, try to adapt his winemaking to uh, the particular... What the specificities of uh, any vineyard, and uh, one can, can think that uh, more this plot produces uh, grapes with uh, less tannins than others, and therefore uh, there must be uh, more extraction to balance uh, the wine, and less is needed in the, in the other one. But I, I think it's a, it's a mistake. Uh, I think it's a mistake. It's more interesting to let uh, each terroir speak uh, without interfering. There's less chance, there's less risk uh, that you, the, the winemaker, will ruin the natural balance of the grapes. That was one of the first uh, questions I've been uh, answering, question I've been uh, asking myself uh, when I started to make wine. Should I extract more in? Uh, ripe vintage or uh, not so ripe vintage. Uh, there are good reasons in both directions. Uh, in a ripe vintage, the quality of the tannins um, is supposed to be good, so uh, it's possible to extract more. But on the other way, there's less need to extract more because there is nat naturally uh, more tannins in the grapes. And there are... <laughs> It took me a long time before I uh, could make my mind, make up my mind on the on this question. I, I finally decided to give no answer to the question and make the wine the same way in uh, each type of vintage. It seems to me the more you try to uh, interfere, uh, the more risk you take of uh, ruining the natural balance of the grapes. Well, there was one vintage that taught me a lot on the, on this question, which was 2003. And 2003 was the year of the canicule, as we say in French. The, the, well, it was a extremely hot weather. The date of harvest was the earliest ever. The grapes suffered from the heat. Some dried on, on the vines. Sugar was high, the acidity was low, uh, there was uh, every possible reason to uh, think you had to do, make the wine in a totally different way from what you do usually. And uh, 
technicians, analogists have been uh, were pushing uh, strongly to uh, change your uh, ways of making wine. And many growers have changed completely what they were doing. They picked much earlier. They made short uh, fermentations. They, they acidified the wines. And I find that these wines are now unbalanced. And the ones that had enough serenity to uh, wait for uh, more reasonable date of harvest, wait until the weather cooled down and uh, some rain could fall. Those who fermented the grapes uh, just as they normally do, with the normal duration of fermentation and the normal uh, extraction, and uh, no addition of uh, anything. Well, actually, they made the best wines, the, more, the most balanced wines. This is, I think, uh, very clear and very, very typical. So uh, if it works in 2003, uh, it should work in any other vintage. And uh, from then on, I've decided I would make the wine almost the same way every year with just a very uh, careful, very prudent evolution uh, from one year to another one, because uh, it's normal to uh, try to improve from one year to another one, but it, it, it's more like a slow trend than, uh, than uh, any revolution. I've become very uh, careful in the changes I make now in my winemaking. That to me is an amazing kind of uh, study in terroir, which is what Burgundy's all about, right? Setting it up that way really allows you to say, okay, well, that's the taste of Mousseline and that's the taste of Bonmar because they're made the same way. And then comparing six to seven, for example, it's the same thing. It's the same winemaking. So you should be able to see the vintage. The part that seems to vary for me when I taste through the young wines is the way that the fruit carries itself in the first few vintages from release, not texturally, not the flavor, but how juicy or how much lift there is to the fruit will vary to the vintage, I find, with a Meunier wine. Because I think you're using the same technique and then the vintage kind of shows what it has. This is my impression. Yeah, well, I, um, I suppose there is a Meunier style that shows uh, vintage after vintage, uh, whatever the weather, and uh, it go, it, yeah, it's visible through the, the mark of the, each vintage. But uh, the most important uh, is um, what I'm interested in uh, in my wines is I like to say well it's what I cannot control. What is really interesting in my wines is what I cannot control. It's what it's what comes from the terroir, from the place where the grapes are grown, and from the climate as well, from the weather as well. It's the expression of nature, and the expression of nature will always be more complex, richer, better balanced, more harmonious than what comes from the technology I've used to make the wine. 
And I think that gets back to that original point that you made about it not being the engineering part that's interesting to you about the wines. Yes, yes. Yes, uh, wine is the contrary of an, an engineered product. It's, uh, it's not. Uh, I'm the contrary of a perfume maker. A perfume maker has a project. He wants to make a perfume with certain style, probably to suit a certain market. And he's trying to find a recipe to make that perfume. Uh, I have no project for my wines. I don't want them to taste like something else. I see them as living beings with a personality of their own. Making wine to me is more like raising children, or a better comparison would be a winemaker is more a gardener than anything else. A gardener does not design the flowers. Uh, he just takes care of the seeds to let them grow and uh, protect them against uh, what could prevent them from developing into the most beautiful flower. But he cannot decide on the shape and the color of the, uh, of the flowers. And uh, yeah, I'm happy with that vision of my job, my responsibility in, uh, in the job I make. Well, I suppose it's, uh, it's a point of view that you can uh, accept only uh, after uh, you've done your own experience. While well, young winemakers have to uh, show uh, all their talent and experiment in uh, all possible different ways. But then you come to a point where you have to make decisions. What do you really want to do? And what kind of wine do you really want to make? And then you have to decide not to do things you could do. And it, it can be a great satisfaction. Well, it's a winemaking of subtraction in a way. You're subtracting. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a relation with uh, uh, Asian philosophy here. My purpose is to go to the core, to find the essence of a vineyard, which is indeed a subtractive process. What does really makes the, the most important part of the personality of this wine? What do I choose to let appear in this wine? And what should not be part of the final wine? Uh, rough tannins, of course, should not be. The most delicate nuances of the fruit must be. It's a selection. That's why it's... Uh, I don't try to extract too much of the, my grapes. The process has to be very soft to extract only the most delicate components of the grapes. And you don't like to rack? Uh, I don't do too many rackings. Uh, I usually do two, uh, one after one year, uh, one year in the barrels, and uh, the second one Six months later, uh, at the time of bottling. And a, a light toast on the French wood? Light toast. I, I don't use much new oak. Uh, new oak should not be noticeable in the wines. Uh, I have no interest for the taste of oak. It can be attractive, but it's not uh, what I want to show. 
I'm fortunate to be in charge of some of the most precious vineyards in the world. Uh, what I want to express in my wines is what is there in the vineyard, not what I can buy from any, what anybody can buy from the tonnelier, from the coopers. Frederick Mounier went searching for oil and found wines that were precious but that he could not control. Thank you very much for being here today. To the pleasure. Thank you. Frederick Mounier of Jacques Frederick Mounier in Chambol in Burgundy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. While I was doing background research for this interview, I used the resources burgundyreport.com and winehog.org. That's burgundy-report.com and winehog, no space, .org. Both of those are great Burgundy references, and if you're interested in learning more about Mounier as I was when I was thinking about questions for this interview, they're great places to look.